Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour, and today is Friday, June 30th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives. As we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people and using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered, these tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for almost 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives when they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581. Press 1 on your phone, and that will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we can have a conversation. How can we support you? 
what's on your mind today? What, how would it be of use to spend this next hour? The first hour today will be live, and the second hour will be a recording from Michael and Jeannie's archives. And um, they will be back live on Monday and Tuesday of this coming week, July 3rd and 4th. But for today, we have plenty of time for comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. What, what's on your mind? How can we support you? Call the number 563-999-3581. And once you call that number, press 1 on your phone, and we'll have a conversation. We have a holiday coming up where lots of people will be gathering with family, friends, eating, drinking, fireworks, all kinds of um, fun and frivolity, and sometimes um, issues, personal issues, family issues. Every time we have a holiday around uh, one of these Internet shows or support groups, we remind people to keep the tools close at hand, to understand that as long as we're still in the physical body, we are going to have issues and we are going to have the potential to get triggered. And the only way to continually make our lives better in that regard is to be willing to constantly monitor what's going on with the willingness to take 100% responsibility for every emotional state we experience. Because as we observe in this work, my emotional state is only always and forever created inside me. My emotional state is a direct result of my mind energy, my mind energy being poured into a certain pattern of thought. And there are these two things that we like to remind people of. The first thing is you have the infinite capacity to choose the focus of your conscious awareness in each new present moment. And the second thing we like to remind people of is that it is the focus of your conscious awareness in each new present moment that is what actually creates your experience of life in that moment. And the more each and every one of us is willing to step into that realization and pick up the tool of responsibility, which has nothing to do with blame or guilt or shame, but responsibility allows me to have the capacity to respond, the ability to respond differently the next time a similar situation arises. And the only way I can do that is if I have taken 100% responsibility for the situation as it unfolds. And in, in this work, there are some rather powerful, specific tools that are available for me to uncover what I'm doing with my conscious logical mind and the mind energy and the unconscious belief systems and having seen that, become aware of it, uh, I can choose to cancel its directives. I can choose to refuse to follow the advice fear would give me and and exert um, 
volition, voluntary control over that process, and in the next moment, create more a more rewarding, a more preferable experience for myself. Um, I was reading in the Anthony DeMello book, and he has a, a, a short statement that's just exactly like some of the core trainings that I remember hearing from Michael almost 20 years ago when I was listening to Michael's lectures. And Anthony DeMello says, what you are aware of, you are in control of. What you are not aware of is in control of you. And so it is so useful for me to step into the work of Michael Rice or Michael Singer or Guy Finley or Diedrich Wolzak or Byron Katie or the Sedona Release Method or Ho'oponopono and actually put into use in my life a practice that helps me become more aware of my dynamic mental and emotional processes, whether that is from five days ago, five minutes ago, 50 years ago, it's those mental and emotional processes that are active in me that I am not aware of that will control me. They will control my behavior. And as long as I can develop the habit and develop the muscle memory for watching myself and the process of my thought and the people and the life events around me, I can be more and more aware on an ongoing basis of those things that used to trip me up, that used to seemingly grab control of me, hijack me. We, we sometimes talk about how my emotions were hijacked or my mind was hijacked. And so Anthony DeMello says, those things that you are aware of, you are in control of. What you are not aware of is in control of you. Michael Rice used to say that the strongest resonant frequency in your energy system, in your mind-body energy system, that you're not aware of will be the thing that drives your behavior. And to, to my eye and ear, it's the same thought as here. What you're aware of from Anthony DeMello, you are in control of. What you're not aware of is in control of you. And if you're trying to track that down, it's in the audible book of, of, of Awareness. The title of the book is Awareness by Anthony DeMello. And in the audio book, it's chapter 20, 23, about seven minutes into the chapter. I don't know where that would come out on the Kindle version or the paperback, but it's in there. And the essence uh, of this teaching that is so hand-in-glove, so much on a, a mirror image of what we were listening to last night in the support group with a Guy Finley talk and 
what we hear every time we load up a Michael Singer talk or one of his books, either The Untethered Soul or The Surrender Experiment or Living Untethered. It's the same message. You, you, your essence is not your thoughts, is not your body. And you, as an essence, get to choose to step back and watch the flow of the energies that move through the body, the energies that move through the mind, the energies you might call thoughts, the energies you might call emotions. And you, your essence, as consciousness and awareness, can practice observing all of that and maintaining the flexibility to observe it without being controlled by it. You can maintain your capacity to exercise an infinite capacity to choose the focus of your conscious awareness. And when you shift the focus of your conscious awareness, you create your experience of life. Whether it's choosing an interpretation that some might call a reframe, or whether it's actually shifting the focus of your awareness altogether away from a certain thought pattern or physical sensation, you literally create your experience of life by what you pour your mind energy into. And you may not be aware of it because you may not have been trained and taught this, but as you become introduced to these concepts and trained and taught, if you you decide to practice this for yourself, you can become more and more effective in shifting the focus of your thoughts in any given moment. It's a skill. It's a practice that you can develop muscle memory for. It is an actual dynamic that will allow you on a regular basis to change the course and direction of your life, whether it's from moment to moment or it's from you know, one long-standing pattern to the next. The more I become aware of what it is I'm doing and what the impact is of my choice of focus of my mind energy, on my life experience and on the people around me and on my interactions with others, the more I become aware of that, the more I get to actively choose from a conscious perspective the results I would like and how to achieve them. And there's just no way to to put words on how much better my life is since I've been practicing that, since I've increased my conscious awareness, since I've awakened from the slumber of the family and cultural conditioning. And that's what we're liking, that's what we would like to offer everyone. That's why we're doing this work. We want to 
assist people in having a direct experience of their own personal agency, their own ability to change their experience of life moment to moment. And then, having been introduced to that, having had some practice at it, if you choose to and you continue to practice with it, you can just get better and better. at living your life from direct choice rather than feeling or having an experience of being a victim of life. Just as I say that, it reminds me of the the thing that I've come to work with people on and say, listen, this might sound like semantics and this might sound nitpicky, but if I can simply change the thought pattern or the vocalizations that I choose to make, every time the thought comes up that I'm a victim of this or that, every time I catch myself having the thought that I'm a victim of one thing or another, if I can shift that one word, victim, into the the word experience or experienced. I'm a victim of this or that feels and it sounds, but it feels inside me very different than if I say I have experienced this or that. So, you know, maybe I'm I'm like uh, Kevin Meehan who experienced Uh, abandonment by both of his parents and experienced physical beatings and rape and 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 if he if you listen to him if you read his book fallen peppercorns or you listen to the interview that i did with him that published probably earlier this week you won't hear him talking about he was a victim of this or that you'll hear him expressing that he experienced these things and while he wouldn't choose them None of them, the ones that I'm talking about, were pleasant. His experience of that, when framed as just that, this was something that I experienced, I went through. It doesn't define me. It didn't happen because of me and my not being worthy. It's not a punishment. It was just an experience then the filter he puts on it, the way he thinks about it, the way he speaks about it, creates a very different life experience than if he were to say, I was a victim of this or that, or I've been victimized by this and that. So there's another thing you might want to try, to just shift in your own thought and your own speech pattern. If you hear any hint of or any declaration of or even even any intimation of the fact that you are a victim of something you might choose to rewrite that thought within your mind you might choose to speak differently about it to think differently about it this was something that i as a consciousness witnessed, but I wasn't a victim of it. 
it didn't change my true nature. It doesn't increase or decrease my value as a person. That that phrase stirs up the, the memories for me of this exercise that I have given to patients for decades now. If they've had any pattern of abuse in their past, I would give them these two exercises. One is a safety rating scale and the other one is the um, observations list. And the safety rating scale exercise is just to ask people to just take a breath and scan their body and feel everything they're feeling and thinking, whether they're feeling physically or emotionally, and then throw a number on it. And since it's the safety rating scale, the higher the number, the greater the safety feeling. And so they'll be in my office, and I'll say, so why don't you please just uh, do that. Eyes open or closed, doesn't, doesn't matter, but take a breath, scan your body, and just throw a number on how safe you feel right now. And oftentimes, they're in my office, it's a nice office, climate controlled, and hopefully they have some sense of safety with me, and they will give a fairly high number, anywhere from 6 to 10. And I'll say, okay, great, you did perfectly, that's fine, that's just what we're looking at. You, you threw a number on it, and that's all you needed to do. And then I'll point out to them that their assignment with that exercise is to do that very process a minimum of 20 times throughout the day. It just takes a moment or two. It's not like I'm demanding an hour of their time. And if they do that, if they choose to do that exercise, they will develop the muscle memory for staying connected to the information, the feedback system, in their emotions, in their intuition, in their gut, their head, their heart, their thoughts, all of it together. And that's a really good thing. It will reestablish for them this heart-mind connection, this body-mind connection that they were born with but has been conditioned out of most of us by the time we're in our, our you know, middle school years, let's say. And so the second thing that will happen if they choose to do that exercise is that they will be shown, the more they do that exercise, they'll be shown kind of a map of the people, places, and situations in their life that leave them feeling solidly comfortable and those that leave them feeling neutral or less than safe and comfortable. And there's a wonderful roadmap that can be developed by practicing that safety rating scale exercise day in and day out. And then the other part of that two-exercise packet is the observations list. And I ask people to make a list of observations that have or statements that have these four conditions are true about it. It can be anything you want as long as it's absolutely true. It's 100% unconditionally true. It's about you or has you or me or I as the focus. 
it's I just drew a blank on what the third one is, so I'm going to pull that out. So it's absolutely true, unconditionally true, doesn't matter the day of the week. It's neutral. We'll tolerate a little bit of positive in the beginning, but no negative, and we're shooting for neutral. Every statement begins with the word I or has you as the subject. And the last observation is that the statement is as true for everyone on the planet as it is for you. And as long as the statement fits, you know, follows all four of those guidelines, it can be any statement you want. And I ask them to make a list of, you know, five to seven statements. I think three is too few and seven is too many, but make a list of these statements and then write them down. And then read them a minimum of five times a day until you have them memorized. And then you can recite them five times a day after they've been memorized. And the second part of that assignment is that anytime you do a safety rating and your number is five or less, in other words, neutral or less than safe, then you pull out this list of observation statements and read them. And so what's the point of that? Well, these observation statements are things that in your calm, quiet moments, when you're feeling solid and and good, you understand this is 100% unconditionally true. It's just a neutral observation about the facts of your life. It's focused on you so you know it's true for you, and it's as true for everyone on the planet as it is for you, so you you know you're not distorting it by putting somebody above you or below you, etc. And when you read a statement like that or a list of statements like that, when you're feeling a little shaky or a little unsafe, it has the tendency to ground you in the truth that who you are cannot be that what you are cannot be hurt. And that it tends to disrupt the thought pattern that's generating the fear or the insecurity. And then, if you want to, you can do something like the EFT tapping or some breath work, or you can pull out a reality management worksheet. But that's that's those two exercises. Now, here's why that came to mind. Because as I was just talking a little bit and letting things flow, I said something about how the events in life don't increase or decrease my value. And that's one of the recommended statements that I list here. So I've listed 11 or 12 different possible statements that people can use in their list or they can use it to create their own list. And one of them is, my mistakes and failures in any area do not lessen my value as a person. And another way I've said it is, my my successes and failures in any area don't increase or decrease my value as a person. My value as a person was established from 
the fact that there's the breath of life in me, the fact that I exist, the fact that I have consciousness. Another one on that list is that other people's opinions of me do not increase or decrease my value as a person. The others on this list begin with, I'm a human being and I deserve to be treated with respect. I used to say, I'm a good person and I I deserve to be treated with respect. And I got away with that for years until somebody came along and said, wait a minute, I don't believe that. And I said, excuse me, you don't believe what? I don't believe I'm a good person. And they had me stumped there because that's... So I thought about it for a week or two, and then it came to me, oh, okay. Do you believe you're a human being? Yes. All right, well, then as a human being on this planet, you deserve to be treated with respect because even people who've done mass murders are protected from being lynched and given three meals a day and given a fair trial, et cetera, to the best of whatever ability of the legal system in that right. And so unless you've done, I mean, even if you've done something as horrible as multiple murders, you still deserve that. So I'm a human being and I deserve to be treated with respect. That's one observation you could have on your list. The second recommendation here is I'm not responsible for other people's emotions and reactions. And this powerful observation is also part of observation number four in the bottom line observations list. That observation number four says, I can only control and be responsible for my own emotions and reactions. I cannot control or be responsible for the emotions and reactions of anybody else, no matter how hard I try. The third observation or listed suggested observation here is, I'm entitled to and I'm responsible for my own emotions and reactions. The next one is, As a human being, I am capable of loving and being loved. And the explanation after that statement says, maybe many of us are not good at that yet. Maybe we haven't been coached. It hasn't been modeled for us by our parents or significant guardians. And yet, it is within our capacity as, as a human being to develop that, I'll call it that capacity, that ability to be loved and love in return, to extend that energy uh, which is our true nature. The fifth observation here is it's okay for me to say no. That's a big one for a lot of people. They have all kinds of emotions and fears loaded around saying no and what the ramifications might be. The next suggested observation is, I'm not responsible for the failures of other members of my family. And sometimes when people read that, they go, that's a bizarre thing to have on this list. But I didn't create that one. That was um, created by a patient of mine who had a very abusive childhood and grew up and was the only one of five siblings who didn't remain dependent on the parents, didn't develop a drug and alcohol or heroin addiction, 
didn't go from one bad, abusive relationship to the next. So here's a person who got out of it, and she got a good job, and she had her own house, and she met a nice person and got married and had her own car and had her own savings account. And as such, she became a, she became a target for her siblings and her parents. And you might say she was the black sheep. They blamed everything on her. At the, and in the next breath, after blaming things on her and criticizing her and running her down, they would come and ask her for money. Or they would ask her if they could move in with her. Or they would ask to borrow her car. Or they would ask her to buy them a car. Just, And they would say to her that she was the reason they couldn't make progress. That mom and dad always gave everything to her and and paid for her college and this all, all kinds of lies. And in our first session where I presented this tool to her, I asked her if she wanted to work up some observations in the session. She said, no, I'll do it on my own at home. I said, all right. So she came back the next week with a list of observations that really weren't observations at all. They were more like affirmations, and they violated two or three or all four of the rules for this list And so I pointed out to her how um, I'm glad that she was willing to try it, and yet here's how this statement violates rule number one or rule number two or rule number three or rule number four all the way down the list. And I said, so you want us to put together some? And she said, no, I'm going to do it. She went away and came back the second time through with a list that was wonderful, and this was one of them. She came to the realization that she is not responsible for the failures of the other members of her family. And I told her, that's great, and I'd like your permission to include that in my list. And she says, oh, that's very good. I feel honored. And I said, and at the same time you have that, you've given me permission to put that in my list, I want you to know I will never put that on my list. And she said, why not? And I said, because it wouldn't have any value for me because the members of my family haven't been accusing me of being responsible for their failures. The value in this list is that it's created out of the issues that you struggle with whenever you're triggered, but that from a calm, quiet space, from your strength and from the coaching you get from somebody who isn't struggling with the same issue, you can make a statement that fits all four rules. It's 100% unconditionally true. It begins with the word I or has you as the subject. It's neutral. We're not trying to get a, a list of affirmations here. We're not trying to pump anybody up that they're better than or worse than somebody. And the last rule for each observation or statement is that it's true for everyone on the planet, not just for you. The next suggested observation or statement is, I did nothing to deserve the abuse I have received in my life. The next one is, if I could have done things differently, I would have. And this is just a way to bring in 
that wonderful filter that I like to use. And while I don't know it's absolutely true, I do know my life gets better the more I pretend the following statement is true. And here's the statement. Everyone is doing the best they can in each moment with whatever resources they have in that moment. And that doesn't mean whatever resources the people around them have or think they should have. It means everyone is doing the best they can in each moment with whatever resources they have access to in that moment. So, if I could have done things differently, I would have. The next observation or statement is, if I don't look out for my best interests, no one else will. This this is one that is probably a reflection of a number of different sources, including uh, what I read last Friday as the chapter from the book The Mirror Theory with Mariah, the reflective sister, and the talk about how no loving gift is ever truly given unless the giver is honored in that process. It is not a loving thing for me to give all to somebody to my own detriment. So if I don't look out for my own best interests, no one else will. The next one is, those things which are my greatest assets will at times be my greatest liabilities. The next one is the one I read already. My mistakes and failures in any area do not lessen my value as a person. And that one comes from Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, where it says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. right? So my successes and failures in any area are just that. They're just successes or failures. They don't, they don't increase or decrease my value as a person. I don't have more value than another human being because I set up a nonprofit that's donated $40 million to homeless people or to starving people. That's a very nice thing, but that doesn't give me any more value than any other human being who's drawing breath. And that doesn't fit with our Western society's concepts. It certainly doesn't fit the model of value that's based exclusively on physical, material objects and wealth. And yet, we try to bring home the observation over and over again in this work that there's a lot more going on here than what your five senses can reveal to you. And at the heart of any deep spiritual teaching is the observation that you are not just a meat sack, as some people say. You are not just the physical body. And if you're not just the physical body, you're certainly not just the accumulation of the actions you've taken. 
your ability to step back and look at the things you've done, your ability to look forward in time or go back and retrieve thoughts, um, experiences from the past and thoughts about them means there's someone, there's something that is separate from that flow of time. Because in order to have an observer, the observer has to be separate from what is being observed, which is why we know I am not my thoughts. You are not your thoughts. Why? Because you, you can be aware of your thoughts and you can change your thoughts, which, based on this very simple direct observation, means you can't be the same as your thoughts. You must be able to step back and watch them. Now, a lot of people get to be, you know, teenagers or in their 20s or 30s or 40s, and no one's ever introduced them to that observation. No one's ever helped them step back and build some awareness around that observation and its implications and or its uses in their life. But it doesn't change the fact that that's still true, that anyone can learn to step back and observe their thoughts and therefore be introduced to the actuality that they cannot be their thoughts. There must be a difference, otherwise you couldn't step back and observe it. This was being hit in the Anthony DeMello book at one point. You can't, the eye, the physical eye in a human body, can't see itself. It can see a reflection of itself in a mirror or you know, a, you know, a, a pool, a clear pool. So your essence of who you are can't step back and see who you are. So you have to have this willingness to step into this level of observation so that you can expand your experience to that of somebody who understands there's more going on in their life, in their experience, and in the world around them, then their conscious logical mind can have words for or build concepts about. Well, you can have a concept about it, but it won't, it won't even come close to touching the truth of what is. So, There you have uh, almost 45 minutes of um, talk. Perhaps useful, perhaps not. I don't, I don't remember exactly what got me started on that, but that safety ratings and observations list was uh, a tool that I've continue to use. I've used it for decades with people. If they show up in my office and they've got any kind of a history of abuse, especially if it started younger in their lives, they've probably been deeply programmed and conditioned 
to ignore their insight, their intuition, their emotional body, their whole physical self full of reactions. And those two exercises are part of how I begin working with people, offering them those two exercises as tools to first reconnect their conscious mind to their gut, to their heart, to their insight and intuition. And then over time, if they continue to practice it, to strengthen that connection and stay grounded in the observations of their own value and worth, even in situations where traditionally they've been conditioned to choose anger, choose fear, choose hurt or confusion. And again, in this work, over and over again, we have the invitation to choose for love, to choose calm, to choose for peace. Area code 541, you're in the air. <clears throat> yes, Dr. Tim. Um, when you were reading those bo- those observations, I got out near bottom line observation list, and I didn't see any of those that were the same. Do you have another list for people who've gone through trauma? Well, what I was just reading was a list of, suggested statements or observations that people can either tap into or create their own with those as a template. And there are four rules that have to be applied to every statement. It can be anything you want. It can be any statement you want as long as it fits those four rules. It it complies with those four rules. It's 100% unconditionally true. It has a, a, a neutral focus. We'll tolerate a little bit of positive in the beginning, but no negative. And we're shooting for neutral. It's a statement about the speaker. It begins with the word I or has the speaker as the subject. And it's as true for everyone on the planet as it is for the speaker. And as long as the statement fits all four rules, it can be anything you want. It can be as long or as short as you want, as long as it fits all four rules. And then I give a list of 12 statements or observations, each of which, in my opinion, complies with all four rules. And then I suggest that people make a list of five to seven statements. I think three is not enough. Anything more than seven is too much. But this manageable list of statements that you write on a sheet of paper and you keep with you at all times and you pull it out and read it a minimum of five times a day until they are memorized. And then after that, you can just recite them five times a day. And these are statements that you know are 100% unconditionally true They're just neutral statements of facts in life. They're focused about you, and they're as true for everyone on the planet as they are for you. So they tend to have a very grounding nature, and and they're, they're developed out of your life experiences and your trigger points. So they, they should have specific relevance to you. So some people wouldn't say it's okay for me to say no because they, they don't have any problem saying no. 
you know, it's okay for me to say no is one of the suggested statements. Like I said in, in the talk, I would never have the one statement. It's a really good statement for somebody where it's relevant in their life. But I've never had my family members accuse me of being responsible for their failures. So I wouldn't write on my list that I am not responsible for the failures of the other members in my family because it's not relevant to me. And so this is a list of just 12 possible statements or observations that people could use. Or they could use it just as a jumping-off point to create their own. As a list that they, they write a list of, you know, my target is five statements, five to seven, and they keep it with them and they read it five times a day to try and get it to, into, into memory, into working memory as, as a, a, a set of observations that are grounding. And then if they're doing that other exercise, which is the safety rating scale exercise, any time they take a breath and get centered and scan their body and they throw a number on how safe they're feeling that's five or less, if it's neutral or not so safe, then they pull out that list of statements and observations and read it because it helps them ground themselves in their safety and their value, etc., so it gets them out of the negative spin in their mind and helps them get grounded in the moment. So that's where that list of observations is coming from. It's not the same as the bottom line observations list. Okay. Although a couple of and them I'm are very similar. So I'm assuming that's on the downloadable form on the mindshiftersacademy.org? Well, you might assume that. I'm I'm typing it in as I sit here to see if I've put that up there. I think over time that's been requested. Yes, it's it's on the um educational materials page. Perfect. And it's called the safety rating scale and observations list. Perfect. And it's a four page PDF that you can read online or download and print out. Beautiful, because uh, I was really listening hard this morning, and I appreciate all of the work that's been done to bring these tools to us, and thank you. I'll well download it post-haste. Well, it is... um it's just like any other really good tool. It only works if you work it, right? It only has value in your life according to how much of your energy you're willing to put in its application. And yet, it has been yes. um, one of the more one of the more productive tools that I've pulled together and offered to patients over the past forty nine years. I shall be on it. <laughs> <laughs> because when you were talking about the lady who had brought in that observation that she was not responsible for her family members. Failures, I, um, right. Failures, yeah, failures, family members' failures, and that um, she wasn't, therefore, I assumed, uh, obligated to fix it. So... Uh, that's been my family in spades, and that's how I was raised um, with a lot of alcoholism and things. And I remember my mother rescuing my oldest uncle a lot 
who was an alcoholic and, um, you know, to the detriment of our family, actually, uh, and our family's resources. And it's just like, yeah. And then my younger uncle, whom I adored, he was a charming, sweet gentleman, just had a bad habit of robbing jewelry stores and banks and was in prison most of his life. Um, you know, she, she, again, she was responsible for him. And so it's like, uh, yeah, I can use those lists. I can use that um, tool really well. Thank you. I'll, I'll add it to Zach Bush's five-minute lymphatic flow exercise. So <laughs> I can do them all in, in a short time sequence. It works for my busy life. Yep. All right. Well, any thoughts, any other thoughts or observations or anything we can support you with today? Well, I I was listening when you were asking for suggestions, and I got to thinking again about Carolyn Mace and the Anatomy of the Spirit and all of the other um, books that she's done and all of her work on the Internet and I, I'd just be curious to where she is now, how she's involved. She also was raised Catholic. I am having so much fun with all my Catholic friends and really beginning to explore the spiritual richness at the base of that religion uh, before it became a religion, like you were mentioning the other day about uh, making sure that we didn't assume that um, Guy Finley was dumping on religions, but when talking about the spiritual base, where they all started. That was that was from stuff. the support group last night. Right, right. And so um, I'm just enjoying the mystery of unfolding in all of these attempts to discern and uh, share uh, the mystery the mystery of, of what's going on around us. And so um, I, I would just be interested, it'd be interesting to know if you were able to and inclined and able to interview her, what she might say now about how she has evolved spiritually and where she's at at the present moment. That would be sweet, I would think. I would like that. Um, but anyway. All right. Well, oh, were we'll you ever see. able we'll to Go ahead. Was I ever able to reach who? Uh, Richard Rohr. I'd heard he'd been Well, I, I reached so out. I, I, I filled out the form on the website probably twice now, okay. but I haven't heard back. Okay. So. Yes, I heard from a friend who follows him pretty closely that he's quite ill. I understand he has cancer or something like that, so that may not be able to materialize, but do keep... Do keep asking. You never know. If we don't ask, we never get. Isn't that true? This is also part At of least our, we get 50% our direct observation. Yep. <laughs> At least 50%. I figure the odds are pretty good if I ask. that. Um, if I don't ask, it's 100% no. So what can I say? There you go. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Well, have a blessed day, and I will mute you so you can listen to our second hour. Thank you again for the comments. I hope you find that exercise useful. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. 
And this is your second hour. Michael and Jeannie will be back on Monday and Tuesday. Unless a person has tools to support healing in their lives, painful realities remain hidden in their minds and bodies. I wanted to explore with Richard how these stored realities express. I marveled that people who have no idea that there are tools with which they can unload their burdens survive as long as they do. Richard, I hear loud and clear that you would rather not deal with your pain, but allow me to add another piece to the puzzle. What you hide from yourself is your disease. Now, wait a second. How do you get from stored painful realities to disease? Well, physicists tell us everything is energy. Think of the body as an energy field instead of physical matter. There are two main categories of energy relative to that field. There's disintegrative energy, which tears the human energy system down, and integrative energy, which builds the system up. Well, now, what does that have to do with disease? Well, pain is a signal of disease. Not disease, but dis-ease. It tells the system that somewhere within there is something physically, mentally, or emotionally out of place. It's not an enemy, but a friend in disguise. When we don't want to listen to the feedback the system gives us, it gets our attention by yelling, Ouch! Pain. The purpose of pain is to make our ears grow. If we refuse to listen by suppressing the warning, it will grow in intensity. Pain will not be ignored. Sooner or later, it gets our full attention, and we follow its guidance to correction, or we die. This applies to physical, mental, emotional, and relationship pain. Getting rid of pain without dealing with this message is like cutting the wires to the bell on a fire alarm. The fire alarm screams out to get your attention to tell you there's a problem. It demands, listen to me. If you refuse to listen by shutting down the feedback, Things do quiet down, but the fire still rages somewhere. Sooner or later, the fire will break through and make you aware that it is burning. The longer it takes to recognize where the fire is, the more difficult it will probably be to extinguish. Killing the bell certainly has nothing to do with putting the fire out. Pain is just a bell uh, warning us that we need to look out for something. I, I, I always thought you were just supposed to take a pill to make the pain go away, and that's how you got well. That's what I was taught. Well, thinking that will sure sell a lot of pills, but shutting down the alarm without dealing with the fire that's burning will lead to total destruction. Obviously, pain held anywhere in tissue does not contribute to the health of that tissue or any part of the system. The only reason for pain, 100% of the time, is the disintegrative energy that invites us to look deeper into ourselves and deal with whatever we've hidden there. Medical research is proving that every cell in the body stores information. Our disease and our pain come from the energy introduced into tissue by the negative realities we store there and the drugs we use to keep those realities suppressed. The secondary cause of pain is the lifestyle we choose to keep ourselves in a weakened condition. What? Uh, you've got to be kidding. Uh, Who would purposely weaken themselves? Think about it, Richard. You can't suppress anything in an energy system that's at full vitality, right? Yeah. In order to suppress, something has to shut down the flow of energy in the system so that whatever is hidden remains that way. Show me someone who, say for instance, takes a drug for depression. If you remove their drug, what happens? They begin to remember what's been suppressed and will go back into that depression, right? 
Well, that means the drug worked, didn't it? So, uh, without it, they feel depressed. With it, they feel better. Depends uh, on what you mean by worked, Richard. If sweeping something under the rug is your definition of work, drugs are doing their job. The action of most drugs, legal or illegal, including caffeine, nicotine, sugar, alcohol, or junk food, is to lower the vitality of the system sufficiently so that the pain we desire to suppress remains out of conscious awareness. Now notice, I said, out of conscious awareness, not gone or cured. It means only that we are no longer aware of it. If we use drugs to suppress pain, and the cause of the pain is still intact, sooner or later it will surface somewhere in the system, often under the guise of a side effect. What you can't see or feel, you cannot heal. However, pain is not required. It's only a motivator. If we consciously choose to motivate ourselves, then instead of no pain, no gain, our lives will be no pain, no pain. And does that mean I should never take drugs? There are benefits to the use of drugs in that you have better short-term function when you keep pain suppressed, but true healing is impossible in that state. Drugs in the hands of a true healer can be used to temporarily control threatening symptoms, and so they can save a life. However, they don't heal, though they can buy time to do the necessary inner work of healing. I went on to reinforce that healing does not come from a drug any more than a fire is put out by cutting the wires to the bell. He seemed to relate to the idea that drugs shut down the highly tuned mechanism of feelings and rob us of our feedback. The mind cannot show us what we are unwilling to see and therefore distorts every situation where there is denial. Drugs simply reinforce the blockages denial creates. They're like a physical form of denial. If one does not have and use tools with which to heal, drugs tend to become a way of life, a one-way ticket to degeneration. I shared with Richard a poem that sums up perfectly for me the whole topic of disease and our part in it. The poem's entitled Each Moment, and it goes like this. Each moment of love, each moment of giving, each moment of joy is a moment of living. Each moment of anger, each moment of lying, each moment of fear is a moment of dying. All our moments add together, like the digits in a sum, and the answer tells us plainly whether life or death shall come. That's a poem that was written by a man named Lord Martin Cecil. Powerful. Richard was grasping the concept that reality is the output of the human mind, not what is going on in the world, which is actuality. He expressed relief at understanding more about what drove his mind and caused his pain. He explained it had never occurred to him that what showed up in his mind, his reality, could possibly be different from what happened in the world, actuality. He acknowledged that he lived totally unaware that denial could distort the realities in the mind so completely. Grasping that principle struck a chord of recognition for him, and he volunteered an example. I uh, have never conceived before that what happens in the world could possibly be different from what shows up in my mind. The other day, I was in a restaurant enjoying a uh, steaming cup of coffee when the waitress came by and took it. Uh, I didn't give her the chance to explain. I just snapped at her before I saw the fresh cup of coffee in her hands. 
She had seen me spill the coffee into the saucer and was attempting to keep me from uh, making a mess of my clean suit. I, I have never thought in, in these terms before, but uh, what you're saying helps me make sense of that situation. When I turned and saw her picking up my cup, I thought, don't touch my coffee. <laughs> I, I was ready to attack. Now I realize her reality was probably something like, uh-oh, that cup is about to drip. I'd better grab it. I wanted to bring the train of thought full cycle. Your underlying reality was probably something like, people take things from me. For her, it was likely, I take care of people. In the meantime, the actuality was she simply picked up a dripping cup. As we continue to focus on his experience with the waitress and the reality in him that was being triggered by this event, his insight deepened. Now I see why people are confused by my behavior. I'm quick to accuse, and they have no idea why I'm upset. I understand now that my upset is really a reality in my head. I'm grasping the idea that my reaction to the waitress didn't have anything to do with what actually happened, uh, except that it was a trigger. I'm sure my reality didn't even remotely resemble the one that was happening for her. This initial insight provided Richard with a new perspective on actuality his own and others' internal reality structures, and his responsibility for his life. He had understood the concept of a trigger and was delighted. I feel great. Good work, Richard. It's exciting to see through new eyes, isn't it? My experience is that most people think everyone is experiencing the same thing I am. Why don't they understand me? The truth is that at every moment, every person is experiencing a different reality, and seldom do our realities match exactly. If you don't make room in your heart and mind for other people's realities to be different, especially in your intimate relationships, there's going to be trouble. Looking at things from that perspective, it amazes me that we even start to get along. I, I'm still a little confused, but uh, bear with me. I, I need to clarify this. The waitress and a thousand other people that I've done this to uh, did something that in their reality was positive, something loving. Uh, the actuality of the event between us was neutral. I mean, after all, picking up a cup of coffee is just picking up a cup of coffee. Uh, she was trying to help, but her action was a trigger for me and for my reality. They're taking something away from me. I, I, I was thinking that. I attacked her to protect myself from losing something, a reality that was happening only in my own head. Richard became quiet and all animation disappeared. Tears rolled down his reddened face, and he could hardly speak. What's happening, Richard? I'm, I'm realizing this happened all the time between my mother and, and me. I do something I thought she would appreciate, and instead I got yelled at or beat up on uh, for it. I, I, I never understood why. No matter how hard I tried, I could never get it right. Living with her was like walking through a minefield. Several still moments passed before Richard spoke again. I wonder how many people I have destroyed with the same behavior. How many times have I treated others like that and not realized what I was doing? I don't think that there are enough apologies in the world for the people I've acted that out with. Why do I feel stupid? Another long silence followed. I finally spoke. Sounds like perhaps you felt destroyed by your mother. No, no, no. I, I love my mother. Uh, why, would, why would you say that? 
Well, as I listened to your clarification process, which was very powerful, you keyed into at least one of the reasons you attack so readily. You do it to protect what is yours. Your next step was to see that attacking was a pattern you learned from your mother. Listening to your perceptions of the interaction with her tells me a lot about the content of your mind. When I explained to Richard that the perceptual output of the mind always tells more about the content of the perceiving mind than about the perceived world, it made sense to him. He acknowledged that he had felt devastated by his mother. In spite of pretending that they had a great relationship, he avoids her even to this day. As I talked him through his fear of feeling sadness about what he'd uncovered, helping to create a safe space for him to be honest with himself, he spoke again of his fear of being destroyed by what might surface. Richard's fear of being destroyed was an old reality that needed to be exposed fully in order to be healed. I assured him that it was safe to look at whatever came to his mind. I invited him to be aware that a memory of pain is just a memory and he did not need to re-empower his old pain as though it were true present moment pain. He had survived the trauma when he first felt it and locked the experience into his body. He would survive its release as the old energy moved out of the system. Within moments, through simple breathing and accepting that he was safe, Richard was feeling better and seemed surprised at how much easier it had become to breathe. What, what happened? Breathing through the surfacing of old hidden feelings allows the release. I suspect people will find you easier to get along with in the future and you will probably see an easing of your relationship with your mother. Oh, that's a relief. It's interesting to observe how these issues relate to one another. This really takes concentration and work, doesn't it? Yes, it takes courage to face yourself and be vulnerable enough to feel your true feelings and honest enough to look at your real thoughts. I think the most important piece of work that you've done in the last few minutes, Richard, was the next link that you made. The thought that you destroyed people by attacking them needlessly. Did you notice that insight came on the heels of living with my mom was like walking through a minefield? Mm -hmm. That sequence of thoughts said to me that, as a child, there's a good chance you felt destroyed by what you perceived as your mother's attacks. It was probably too much for a young mind to confront, so the belief remained hidden until this moment. In the denial of that reality, your mind showed you only evidence of a loving mother, and at the same time, you blamed her for your hurt feelings. Richard's inability to own his thoughts of blame caused them to surface when least expected. They would run out of control and cause his actions to be out of proportion with the situations he faced. His blame thoughts became generalized. His reaction, attacking the waitress, for example, was generalized from the realities learned from early interactions with the mother who attacked to protect herself. This dynamic was the source of the emotional explosions that drove people away, the type of reverberations that often go on for decades after the original reason for blaming is passed. The belief that another is responsible for the output of your mind is a result of projection. If my suspicion is true, you attempted to keep the thought that you were destroyed by your mother hidden by projecting it into your mind's image of yourself. My clue, as I listened, was when you said, I destroyed others. I'm not sure I'm connecting it all together as you are, but it is a relief to be on, uh, on this side of those feelings. It, it seems uh, that it will be easier to be gentle with others. 
What Richard had just gone through is called process. Holding the space of safety and love allows an unraveling of the jumbled unconscious realities that one holds in his or her mind. Rarely does one realize the dynamics that run beneath the surface when a decision is made or one compulsively engages in behavior they would rather avoid. The mind becomes free of its conflicts when we allow process to happen. In the past, if thoughts and feelings like this surfaced for you, it was probably in the context of conflict and anger which just reinforced the pain and upset. Right, Richard? Yeah. That continuous reinforcement makes it more difficult to confront feelings directly. It is having a loving space while issues are surfacing that shifts the energy into the healing mode. Are you willing to continue? Yes. Now, you grew up behaving toward others as you perceived your mother did toward you, probably because you saw mom as successful enough to model your behavior after her. That behavior worked to control you, but it, did it endear your mother to you? No. No, I hated it uh, when she did that. It drove me away from her. So it accomplished the goal of controlling you, but you detested being controlled. You hated your mother's behavior, but you've become just like her? Hmm. Earlier, you said another wife was leaving you. Has anyone ever told you they felt driven away by you? How, how did you know that? Well, the same way I figured out you felt destroyed by your mother. But let's hold that issue for a moment. I suggest you notice that controlling behavior does not serve you. It tends to destroy your relationships. Hmm. This certainly gives me a lot to think about. I'm really going to have to spend some time sorting through all of this. But I, I want to understand how you figured all of this out from what little I said. Well, okay, let's look at the feeling of being destroyed by your mother. It appears that it was easier to admit that you destroyed people than to think of her doing that to you. If you believed treating others the way your mother treated you destroyed them, it makes sense that, in your mind, she did the same when she behaved that way toward you. Let's keep in mind that destroyed is a perceptual reality, probably a very complex one, which at this moment will not even try to break down. It, it is more important at this stage that you be responsible for accepting that pattern and modeling your behavior after hers rather than trying to blame your behavior on her. I see many people who take inventory of everyone else's faults but never acknowledge their role in adopting those faults as their own. This leads to more blame and is a justification many use to avoid accountability. It's a great excuse for staying in old patterns, letting oneself off the hook, and not having to change. With your waitress story, you clarified the difference between actuality, reality, and how the mind produces evidence to back up its preconceived notions and create its experiences. You and the waitress experience the same actuality or external event. However, your mind selected different evidence and built a different reality from it. From that event, her mind selected information and assembled it to present a radically different view of the situation. Your mind presented a reason to destroy while hers saw an opportunity for service. Notice how each of your individual mindsets led to divergent realities and experiences. Richard had unraveled the stirring of unconscious realities that drove his behavior and led to his need to attack and protect himself. He had reached into the core of this work and healed major issues. We define healing as the surfacing and letting go of the disintegrative energies of unconsciousness and trauma. Who would think spilling coffee in a restaurant could lead to dealing with what is perhaps one of the deepest issues of someone's life?
Every conflicting situation offers the same precious opportunity if you're willing to see it in the context of healing and allow your mind to construct a healing reality. discussion exploring the evidential mind. Richard experienced his relationships with almost everyone as unpredictable and threatening to his power. Why is it others make us feel what we don't want to feel? The mind can only give you information supported by your internal reality structure. If your core belief is, I'm powerless and get attacked by women, your mind must process your experiences with women in a way that matches that reality. Any information not in sync with that belief is blocked. We discussed the idea that the mind is an evidential device and can access only the information one is willing to see. It then uses that information for building its realities, which are the mind's picture of actuality. When truthful information is blocked, it is impossible to build an accurate reality. If truth is not allowed, the mind cannot reflect truth. Richard, when you deny involvement in what happens, in effect, you instruct your mind to hide information relating to your responsibility in that event. The mind does not show you realities contrary to what it believes, because data inconsistent with its deeply held opinions is blocked or gated out. The mind has no choice when denied access to information or providing uncalled for data. It sees things that didn't happen if a belief that is different from actuality is triggered. When a belief is resonated by an event in the world, the brain cells that hold that belief will fill in data that is not present in the actuality. The data filled in will show up in the mind's reality as if it were part of the actual external event. Our belief systems, until purged of unconsciousness, tend to hold us in an hypnotic-like state. The mind can only follow your instructions to hide what you do not want to see and what your BS, your belief system, calls for. Gaining access to denied and therefore hidden information and undoing false beliefs are the keys to healing what is at the root of most repeated experiences. Here are a couple of examples that illustrate the point. In a laboratory experiment, cats were implanted with electrodes in an area of the brain that responded to sound. A device that created a clicking noise was placed close to the cat's ear. Each time the experimenters would click the device, the cat's brain registered a sound. A mouse in a bell jar was then placed in front of the cat. With the cat's attention and senses on the mouse, sensitive electronic equipment showed the clicking sound no longer registered in the cat's brain. All evidence of the clicking was blocked or gated out of the cat's awareness. It appears that only evidence that was important to the cat at the moment gained admittance to its awareness. Now, how does that translate into human terms? Well, the implications are many, especially in relationships. A computer analogy allows us to look deeper into the evidential mind's impact on human function. Consider a computer. It is incapable of choice and can only display information as directed. A person operating the computer selects or creates the programs that run on it. Since the computer can only follow directions and display information it has access to, the information available to the operator is limited by the program that's running. 
like a computer, the mind can only use programmed available information and building a reality about the actuality on which it is focused. When a program is run in a mind, the information the mind can access and the quality of reality available are predetermined by the directions from that program. This fact is commonly recognized and called a bias, a slant, a mindset, or a prejudice. If a mind's blame program reads, find the guilty party and make sure that it's somebody else, <laughs> the reality showing up in that mind can only reflect evidence that is contained in brain cells and is consistent with the program. All other information, internal or external, is gated or blocked out of awareness. It's simply not available for use in building the mind's current reality. If no consistent information is resonated by the actuality focused upon, the mind will hallucinate the needed evidence out of its past and attach it to the reality generated. A computer must be reprogrammed or a new program must be loaded in order to access information that is different from what is currently available. In a similar fashion, we must direct our minds to close the blame program and open the responsibility program if we're to see situations, others, and ourselves differently. If your mindset or program is, I'm right, you're wrong, it's settled, why argue? Your mind can only use information proving you're right in building its reality about you. It can only use information that proves another's error to build a reality about them. Any bias renders the mind incapable of providing accurate information about the actual world. I explained to Richard that my conclusion from these ideas and from my observation of human behavior is that the mind only permits into awareness information that supports its goals and prejudices. All other information is hidden. If we hold an emotionally charged goal of being right, the mind withholds all evidence that would show the truth of a situation, that we've made a mistake. The errors we refuse to acknowledge in ourselves, we blame on others. Blaming someone else for what goes on in our minds and using our hidden information to build our mind's image of them and the externalization of that internal process is the main block to healing. Once we project and attempt to place outside of ourselves what is internal, we cut ourselves off from forgiving what is hidden. I know I project because I do experience identical realities repeatedly. I'm, uh, I'm grasping that those scenarios are coming from my own mind, but I don't understand how that interrupts healing. How does projection work in relationships? To answer his question about projection, more information on how the mind sets up what it sees was necessary. Once its reality is structured, the mind tends to see only in terms of its own contents and pre-programmed filters. It tends to place the meanings it contains on anything similar to its past. To a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. I then drew a picture on a piece of paper that resembled a house and Ask the question, what is this, Richard? Well, it's a house, of course. Well, the truth is, it's just lines on a piece of paper. Oh. A man from the jungle who'd lived in nothing but caves would not look at those lines and say, oh, that's a house, and it has smoke coming out of the chimney. He does not have that meaning, that reality stored in his mind. He has no brain cells that contain that information. For him, there is no house in the lines on the page. 
house is a reality contained in and externalized by the mind of the observer, and only an observer with a house in their past would call the lines on the page a house. You mean that there's nothing out there, that it's all in my mind? No, no, no. The lines on the page are there. The external world exists. The point I'm making is that until we become aware, the objective world is just a framework which triggers what we filed away in our minds. Projection is a totally internal process and is a product of the mind using energies from the past triggered into activity to build a reality. The brain's graven image of that trigger. Our projections are false images which, when they are about someone or something else, are then externalized. Externalization is the pretense that an image into which we have projected, the false image engraved in our minds by the past, is outside of us and they are the cause of our pain. Any reality or image we hold in our minds and believe belongs to the outside world is an externalization of that reality. Let's look at a simplistic example. Imagine a child's home life was miserable, and, you know, a life of really severe abuse. If he sees the house, the lines on the page, what might happen? His blood pressure might rise. His eyes will probably bulge slightly. He might be preparing to run. He's given the lines a meaning from his past, a meaning contained in his mind. He then thinks, by externalizing that image and meaning, that the source of his pain is outside of him, that it belongs to the lines on the page. By that action, he's cut off from resolving his pain. Another child who loved lying on the couch in front of the fireplace while mom or dad rubbed her, his or her back sees the lines on the page. Images of wonderful food and family events might be triggered, and she projects the meaning her mind contains on the identical framework. Her mind does not generate a reason to run, though if she externalizes, she might think the lines in the page are the source of her pleasure. By that action, she may forever become dependent on circumstances in the external world for her state of mind, her happiness, her pleasure. Richard was beginning to grasp the subtle concept that a reality seen through a mind is internal to the perceiving mind. He fed back to me his understanding that as you look at the lines on the page, your mind instantly gives a meaning to them. The lines themselves have no meaning other than what your mind projects into them. I completed this aspect of the discussion with the idea, once again, that projection results from a belief that someone else is responsible for the output of your mind. When that belief is held, the mind uses whatever internal information is triggered by another for building a reality about that person. Our denied and suppressed attribute shows up as part of the image our mind builds of them. The mind, by externalizing, makes its images appear to come from the outside. It successfully documents that our pain belongs to them, that they're the cause of what we feel. The mind is a prism through which we view life. If there is any distortion, any resentment or negative feeling, that resentment or negative feeling clouds perception and colors our view of the world. This is why the first law of seeing is love. A mind that constantly holds the condition of love, regardless of circumstance, distorts nothing and is incapable of projection or externalization. When there is a distortion within the mind, we live within its meaning. If anyone who remotely resembles a person we hold a grievance against comes into awareness, we will instantly project our reality into our brain's image of them. 
We tend to believe that it is they who are the source of our grievance and pain, rather than accepting responsibility for the content of our own minds. Again, attempting to place our brain's image outside of ourselves blocks the ability to heal what someone triggers in us and leads to experiencing the same realities repeatedly. Only when we accept responsibility can we change the foundations of our perception. Denial keeps the true source of our pain hidden. We, as human beings, are usually taught to externalize and interact in relationships in a way that guarantees a cycle of repeated experiences. The first step in keeping that cycle going is to deny any involvement in causing our own pain. Then blame another and instruct that person in how he or she should change. If they refuse, we are taught to punish them to force change. If punishment doesn't work, we often leave or throw them out of our lives. In doing this, our painful reality is left fully intact, though it is now hidden again. This formula comes with a guarantee. If you use it, you can rest assured that someone who knows exactly how to access and show you the hidden parts of your mind will soon be knocking on your door again. It is interesting to note that we project and externalize our internal images to avoid pain and by doing so lock inside ourselves the very thing we're attempting to avoid. This, I think, is a good definition of insanity. If I understand correctly, by blaming you, I expect you to be responsible for the reality even though it all comes from inside my own mind. If I try to control you through punishment, I'm kidding myself into believing that by changing you, I will never be forced to experience my pain again. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Changing someone else will not, cannot change your reality. Only you can initiate and carry out that process. Only you can change what's in your mind. It also takes a lot of energy to keep the live projection in place and prevent the truth from entering your awareness. Put that way, Michael, I can see the conflict. It is in my own thinking. I'm trying to achieve an unreachable goal, and I get so frustrated that I exhaust myself. That is so obvious now, and I see that it's been sapping my energy. A friend who's a medical doctor recently told me the most common complaint he hears is about lack of energy. He called it chronic fatigue. I'm starting to understand that the source of my tiredness is this. It's like I've been carrying a ton of weight on my shoulders. Richard's tendency to run from conflict provided an example for us to examine the dynamics of projection in his life. I explained, in a relationship based on projection, each believes the other is responsible for the output of his or her mind and carries their own hidden, unhealed upsets as a burden. As a result, each mind has a distorted picture of what is actually happening. This distortion results from blockage of truth. The mind projects its own errors onto others and cannot see the truth about itself. The mind has unconsciously used its hidden information to build its image of them. We then pretend that our mind's image is a true and accurate picture of the outside world when it is only a true and accurate picture of what's happening inside of us. It is just a projection that reflects a condition in our own minds. When projection occurs, each person expects others to be responsible for his or her thoughts and realities. Each, in effect, wants the other to change his or her mind. As a result, each mind distorts its picture of actuality. 
the distortion results from blockage of truth, which is inherent in the act of projecting. The blocked mind experiences powerlessness because it's cut off from truth, not because another person has the power. We have done ourselves a major disservice when we project, for we've cut ourselves off from the part of our belief system that needs healing. You mean it's all an inside job. As long as I project and externalize my projections, I pretend that you are responsible for my reality, and by so doing, I block the truth? Mm-hmm. Being out of touch with the truth is at the root of feeling powerless. Yes. Once I grasp that it is my holding on that keeps me re-experiencing the, the same painful scenarios, I can get out of this cycle by using these tools. That's it. This is actually starting to make sense. I'm surprised. I, I feel uh, hopeful. I, I think there's something I can do. I, I've always been terrified around women, and I didn't understand how I could feel that helpless in front of someone who was 8 inches shorter and 60 pounds lighter than I am. Now I see that whenever I hold a, a reality based on the belief that I'm powerless, anyone who triggers that reality in me can make me believe that I'm powerless. Is that right? Richard was close in his understanding. No one can actually make another feel anything. However, others can trigger the internal mechanism and whatever is there will surface. Richard, if you have a reality called powerlessness and someone stimulates that belief about yourself, you will experience the effects of that belief as feelings of powerlessness. Keep in mind that you feel something because that reality is within you. No one can make you experience a reality that you haven't already created within yourself. Hmm. If you mistake them as the cause of your reality, your upset and feelings, you will seem to be their victim. If you know how feelings are formulated within yourself and take corrective action, forgive, each painful situation will simply be an opportunity to heal. Uh, why should I forgive them? Ah, I didn't suggest forgiving them, Richard. I suggested forgiving the realities in your mind. True forgiveness does not mean letting someone else off the hook. You can't forgive anyone for anything. True forgiveness is a tool for changing realities in your own mind. But, but I'd like to hold that topic for more detail later. Richard, some of the ideas in this work are difficult to accept at first because the brain cells must be built to even see them. Have you noticed how much we resist being made aware of the truth of things we'd rather hide from ourselves? Most people have had experience of trying to point out what someone didn't want to hear. I like to call the dynamic of hiding information from ourselves blockage of truth, lockage on error. This condition results in a total lock on one's own projection externalization process and an inability to see anything but error until the internal process of forgiveness occurs. Have you noticed how difficult it is for a person in denial to see what to others is so obvious? If you pretend your life is the responsibility of others and that you have nothing to do with creating the painful emotions and the repetitious conflicts in your life, you tell yourself a disempowering lie, and in so doing, hide the truth from yourself. Many things influence our view of life and relationships, often without our awareness. 
family patterns, parental messages, blame, projection, old behavior patterns, blockage of truth, and false forgiveness all play their part in how we interact with each other. Relationships don't die. They are killed by unconsciously driven behaviors. Since most people blame others for what happens to them, they quote-unquote forgive by letting others off the hook. Notice how predictable the results are when people act out their old patterns, refuse to look at themselves responsibly, and think they are forgiving. Well, what if I need to be forgiven for something I've done? Well, Richard, we've been taught an error about forgiveness. The act you are asking about is called pardoning. If you've made an error and wish to be excused for it, you have need of pardon, not forgiveness. Until we learn the true meaning of forgiveness, we substitute pardoning and think that forgiveness has occurred. The act of pardoning does nothing to change the internal reality structure of the person doing the pardoning. It leaves the painful internal reality in place, ready to be triggered again. It also means that the person who is pardoning will usually try to gain control of those pardoned so they will not trigger the pain again. When people forgive each other using the misunderstood form of forgiveness, they let each other off the hook. Then each mind still has its invisible blockages and painful realities. The only way that what has been blocked in a mind becomes visible is as pain and upset projected into that mind's image of others. Each mind, then, keeps its distance, viewing the other as the source of pain. Each tends to avoid a real relationship with them because they fear their internalized pain will be triggered again. The more often either of them, quote-unquote, forgives the other in this erroneous sense, the more likely they are to think of them as the problem and the more separation they will create. Richard was agitated at being challenged again with the idea that he caused his own pain. He proceeded to read me the riot act. Well, that's the way it is. Other people have always been the cause of almost every problem. If, if, only, if only they would think and act logically. I suppose thinking logically means uh, thinking like you do? Oh. That reminds me of the old definition of a genius, someone who agrees with me. Thinking someone else is to blame is a good defense, Richard. But remember, you're the only one who's been there every time. You're the common link in every event. I went on to refresh Richard's memory, something we all need from time to time. Whether or not we're aware of it, whether or not we choose responsibility, we are involved in setting up everything that happens to us. We are creative beings. This work is based on responsibility, and it is your hostility that needs healing. You just torture yourself, give away your power, and make healing impossible by projection and externalization and holding on to blame. The tendency then is to want to get even with them for what you have done to yourself. A total waste of time, energy, and life. Okay, okay. I've been there every time. I, I know this is something that I need to work through, and I will. Do you have any coffee? Oh, and I need a cigarette, too. Well, Richard, you're holding your breath. When denial, projection, externalization, and holding your breath don't keep the truth hidden, and the drug hostility is confronted and made illogical, as we've just done, the mind prompts us to turn to some other form of suppression. Notice your stress levels elevating because you're confronting something painful, your responsibility and your belief in victimhood. I suggest that caffeine and nicotine are ways you suppress your feelings. 
If you use those drugs to relieve stress and block truth, chances are you're addicted to them. The effect of drugs is to assist you in hiding from the truth by keeping your projections and locking on to error, actions that seem to protect you from your pain. In truth, drugs function as anesthetics, distorting the mind's output and disguising your pain while destroying your body. Well, I, I've heard that, that caffeine is hard on the pancreas and the adrenals and, and that smoking contributes to disease processes, but I'm sure that that medical research will solve that problem. I, I've smoked for years and it hasn't hurt me. I really didn't bother to point out his hacking cough and his shortness of breath. In the ancient Aramaic, there was a statement that went something like, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That idea means that we will form cunning defenses and protective mechanisms that shield from the conscious mind the results of whatever we've decided to do, especially if our behavior is self-destructive. A clue that a self-destructive behavior is our treasure is that we defend it though it is harmful to ourselves or others. When you're out of harmony with the lawful orderly process of life and as a result a behavior is producing disease, Richard, I suggest you do whatever is required to change it and stop looking for ways to defend it. I express my amazement at how people engage in behavior proven to be destructive and defend their right to do that behavior while insisting that doctors or government find a cure for them. Notice, for instance, how many people drink to excess on a daily basis and keep searching for a way to cure their hangovers. The cure is simple. Stop the behavior. Don't drink. The problem with that solution for the average person is that with the defensive mechanism out of the way, they will have to confront and deal with their treasure. I've just challenged your treasure, your belief in victimhood and blame, and I invite you to notice that the next level of your defense mechanism is now in view. The need to protect yourself from feeling the pain of being responsible for your victimhood and blame thoughts, I suspect, is behind your holding your breath and your desire for the drugs, coffee, and nicotine. Owning up to responsibility for what happens in your life gives you back your power. It is a healing action. And now what you need to forgive next is being felt. How about letting go of the need for the cigarette and the coffee for the next hour or so and just see if anything more comes up? I, I've noticed that I have a tendency to smoke more when I'm upset, but I've never understood why. Okay, I'll give it a try. I'll hold off the smoking. Hold off the anesthetizing drugs feel fully your painful realities, and engage in the process of true forgiveness. That's where your healing waits for you. Most people, once they have clarity about the cause of the pain in their lives, are excited and eager to go to work on taking care of issues which need to be resolved. Richard was the exception. When I spoke again of true forgiveness being the solution, he went ballistic. Forgiveness. Now, come on. I've been listening to you about your explanations, but uh, I've tried forgiveness. It changes nothing. Take another deep breath, Richard. Remember I spoke of letting go of the dialogue in your head? I invite you to listen to my words, not your past realities about forgiveness and the negative associations you've made. The way forgiveness is commonly taught is only a shadow of its true meaning and function. In this culture, we've generally accepted a substitute for true forgiveness, 
Due to our own ignorance, we bought into the common belief that forgiveness means letting them off the hook for the terrible things they've done to us. This is a Greek concept. It comes from a mindset that externalized everything and attributed cause to the outside world. This is not how true forgiveness was originally presented and not even close to the original Aramaic concept. Engaging in true forgiveness is required to heal. I personally believe that human beings and even civilizations cannot survive long-term without it. Observe the direction our culture has been moving, and I think you'll see what I mean. Now, you've mentioned Aramaic several times. Does that have something to do with religion? If, if so, I'm really not interested in hearing about it. The Aramaic language is an ancient tongue spoken by the originators of at least five of the world's major religions. Religions address the topic of forgiveness, of course, but the topic itself is not the exclusive property of the religions. We need not speak of forgiveness in a religious context in order to experience its enormous practical value. Well, for me, forgiveness has always been linked to religion. Something like that doesn't interest me. Um, it, it's never occurred to me that, I, it, that it could be useful in a practical sense outside of a religious context. Okay, uh, tell me more about this Aramaic. Why is it so important? Well, according to historians, the Aramaic language sprang to life fully matured. It is not based on any other known language. There was no developmental period, nor any known place of origin. Aramaic is one of the oldest spoken and written languages in the world. It was the language of the day throughout the Persian and Babylonian empires. From at least 1000 BC to 1000 AD, Aramaic could be heard from the Mediterranean to the Great Wall of China. It is still spoken today in some villages of Lebanon and in the mountains of northern Iraq. The Zoroastrian, Hebrew, Christian, Islamic, and Baha'i faiths were all originally taught in Aramaic, and it is the language of many of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was the native tongue of Moses, Abraham, Jesus, Muhammad, and Baha'u'llah. Well, how does that relate to my 20th century mind? The Aramaic language and culture impart a practical understanding of human behavior and clearly explain how the mind works. It has the ability to convey deep psychological meanings by adding prefixes and suffixes to root words, an ability unknown in any other language. It seems to me that it has this ability because the Aramaic peoples had an understanding that no other culture is acquired today. This ancient language encompasses a technology desperately needed to heal our culture. The level of comprehension of human function reflected in Aramaic is unknown in the West, and what today is thought of as religion was then simply guidance for daily living. It taught people how to best handle their family lives, relationships, sexuality, business, taxes, legal matters, land, crops, inheritance, and finances. Unfortunately, its advice has been, for the most part, ignored and thought of as, as antiquated by the modern mind. It is a thought structure so radically different from what most of us have been taught that, when first confronted, it shocks the Western mind. Well, it still sounds like a religious spiel to me. Richard, can you let go of the conversation in your head long enough to hear that there might be more in the scriptures than your idea of religion? Investigate genuine spiritual teachings, and you will find that they're about life. They deserve serious consideration. In truth, they are simply an owner's manual for your life, relationships, and body. Oh, well, okay, you've got my curiosity. What you said so far makes sense, so I'll go ahead and listen. 
Once you go beneath the misinterpretations and grasp the original Aramaic thought structure in the scriptures, you will experience a clarity that is profound. What today is called religion has its roots in solid, down-to-earth guidance. The original intention of religion was to create a community where it was safe and nurturing to live differently than the insanity we humans have created in the world. A community that taught people how life worked and instructed people how to achieve the best life had to offer and process them through the world's insanity. Many religions still hold fast to this as their goal. Do you recall hearing quotes in the scriptures like, do not judge by appearances, do not defile the temple, the wages of sin is death? Oh yes, and it's never made a lick of sense to me either. When I was a kid, I heard uh, hypocrites spouting this stuff all the time. They would do the exact opposite when they thought that no one was looking. It sure turned me off. I hear that it was confusing to see people not walking their talk. With the amount of energy and resistance you have around this conversation, I suspect you were abused due to their hypocrisy, were you? My, my folks talked about love and honesty at church, but they beat me up, verbally and physically. They did that at home. If I spoke up or asked why they acted so differently in public, the beatings doubled. I had to lie to keep the family secrets. I had to be dishonest in order to make it look like everything was okay, or I'd be punished. Keeping up with appearances was demanded of me. It was pretty crazy. While I was being lectured to on the value of telling the truth, I was required to live a lie. I saw hypocrisy in the minister and the deacons, lots of people. They were always telling me I was a sinner, and that was painful. Take a breath, Richard. Holding your breath is exactly how you acquire a past about something and carry it with you. Holding your breath attaches the pain of an experience to a reality in the mind. If that reality is triggered, even though external circumstances do not justify it, there will be pain. Richard, has it occurred to you that just because someone could not live up to a teaching does not mean the teaching has no value or that the problem lies within the teaching? It sounds like one of the issues was your parents' inability to live up to their ideals. That does not make them good or bad. It simply means that, like all humans, they were not perfect. It seems you attach the imperfection and abuse of your parents to their religion. Projecting and externalizing your pain onto religion makes it difficult for you to see any benefit in it, and you lose as a result. I've seen many who simultaneously abandon their relationship with their parents and their spiritual support systems in this fashion. Hmm. I guess my parents have the right to be human, too. Uh, perhaps I'm expecting too much of them. I, I can see they were just trying and doing the best that they could. Uh, I feel relieved in just knowing that. That insight is a result of forgiveness. It's a small but significant example of how forgiveness works. I, what do you mean? Well, in your mind, you had a reality, a file, so to speak, called my parent or parents should have been perfect. According to your perception, they weren't, and you attached the pain, abuse, and resentment you experienced with them to your mind's file on parents. Whenever the reality parent was triggered, your perception of them or yourself as a parent was clouded by the complex of thoughts and feelings in that file. In Aramaic, forgive means to cancel. The minute you loosened your grip on your need for them to be perfect, in effect, you canceled your need for that perfection. The result of that action is your parent file opened and the abuse, pain, and resentment it contained began to release. This is true forgiveness in Aramaic. 
certainly a radically different action than letting them off the hook. As the cloud over your perception of them lifted, a painful reality was in process of being forgiven, and you can now see them more realistically. I'm not sure I've heard everything you just said, but I sure feel relieved. You're not the only one who will experience relief, Richard. This release will impact not only your mother and father, but due to the new clarity in your parent file, your capacity to parent will also be enhanced. Notice your parents were not involved in this process, and neither they nor the actualities of the past have changed. Yet you feel better. You are always in charge of your feelings, and no change is required of anyone but you in order for you to heal. Our natural state is happiness. The human being is designed to feel good. Just observe the ease and happiness of a child before it is impacted by our cultural insanities. You said that the release process began, Michael. Does that mean that it's not complete? Will I have to go through more of this pain? Healing is not an event, it's a process. It takes time and happens in stages. You will tend to experience your process as painful as long as you resist it and want to hold on. Well, how long will it take? As long as it takes. And it can be a pleasant, exciting, and easy experience. Unfortunately, many, because of resistance, don't go through it easily. It is an individual process that can be accelerated. Well, I'd like to know how. There are many factors that determine how quickly you move through healing, how easily you process. These include nutrition, exercise, your support system, and a host of other factors. The best way I know to accelerate healing is to apply what I call cosmic grease. It is the willingness to tell the truth and embrace with love what you find inside. It speeds process immeasurably. Repeatedly hiding your truth in relationship causes the resentment that eats away goodwill. Unspoken and unacknowledged realities become attached to the mind's images of others and eventually turn to anger, resentment, and hatred. I've heard of changing the past. Is that what I've just done? Your forgiveness did not change the past, but it changed the reality in your mind about the past. You released some of the old unspoken realities that, until now, were attached to your brain's image of your parents. There is no need to carry the pain of old realities. Your relief and release are a good example of the successful use of true forgiveness. It is wise to remember a success like this if resistance to change surfaces in the future. Give yourself a pat on the back. Go ahead, actually pat your back. It's more than a cliché. Intentionally emphasizing the positive effects of an action or an attitude is known as a positive anchor. When you anchor things through this kind of emphasis, you will be more inclined to repeat them in the future. I'm kind of sensing what you're saying, Michael, but I'm still a little overwhelmed. I feel better, but I'm still confused, and I don't know why. I'm not sure I quite understand what just happened. Richard, as you undo old patterns, some confusion is normal. Bringing your conflicting thoughts and feelings to the surface as you heal creates that kind of effect. Your relief in the situation with your parents came from spontaneous forgiveness, the kind that happens in an accidental and haphazard fashion. One of the primary tools we offer, which you can learn to use and take home with you, is called the Reality Management Worksheet. The purpose for this tool is to teach, on an experiential level, how both joy and pain are created. It is a reliable scientific method you can use at any time.
to let pain go and really embrace joy. If what you're saying is true, I want it.